All right, good morning. Happy Mother's Day to you, all of you who are mothers. Happy Mother's Day. I want to also mention about that, that we do have carnations for all of our mothers. And so we're going to have all the kiddos come up afterwards and they can hand you a carnation if you are their mom. This morning, we have uh, an exciting new challenge before us. We are going to be jumping into a new book of the Bible. One of the core commitments of myself as your pastor is to teach and preach the Bible. I've said it many times, but I don't have anything to offer you other than what is in this book. I have no personal advice. I have no personal words of wisdom that I can give you. All I have to offer you is what is in this book, and this is what God gives to us. And so as the sheep that belong to the flock of God, this book is where our nourishment comes from. This is the book from which we feast, and the Word of God is our delight, and it is our food. And I believe that the best way for us to learn from the Lord is to let God's Word speak. So we very clearly believe here that when God's Word is open, when God's Word is being read, when God's Word is being proclaimed, then God is speaking to us. And so we think the best way is to simply walk through books of the Bible together in order to see what God has to say to us. So together, as a church, in the last few years, we've walked all the way through the book of Matthew together, 28 chapters. We've walked through uh, the book of Galatians together, six chapters there. We've walked through some of the Psalms together. But this morning, we come to this exciting new book of the Bible, the book of Colossians. And so to give you a little bit of an introduction about the book of of Colossians, it was written by the Apostle Paul. Paul himself, as far as we know, had never been to Colossae. At the time that he writes this letter, he's actually in a Roman prison, of course in Rome, and it's in the early 60s of the first century. And so many of you have probably heard, even in your uh, history studies, um, of the great emperor Nero. And he wasn't great in a good sense, he was great in a very evil and wicked sense. He was vicious, even in terms of how we related with Christians, And so there Paul is, he's writing this letter to the Colossians, and he's sitting in a Roman prison. About a hundred miles away from Colossae is the great city of Ephesus, where the Apostle Paul spent a lot of his time during his ministry. And what apparently had happened, while he was there in Ephesus, and you saw that name, it's kind of an interesting name when Mike was reading, of Epaphras. This is the name of a guy that had heard Paul speak while he was in uh, Ephesus. And so Epaphras, after hearing Paul preach the gospel, Epaphras gets saved, and then he goes back to his hometown of Colossae, and a bunch of other people get saved in Colossae, and they start a church. I, I love that, even that simple fact. So, so Epaphras hears the gospel from Paul, he goes back to his hometown, he starts telling everybody about Jesus, they start a church, and Epaphras is apparently uh, one of the leaders of this church. But it's so cool to me that God is using the normal people in the first century. He's not just using the apostles. He's not just using the guys like Timothy and Titus and those big names that we know. He, he's using normal guys like Epaphras. And so when we start to put some of the dots together, again, giving some introduction to this book, we see that there's some sort of problem within the church of Colossae that Paul is addressing. 
And so what happens is, again, they start the church in Colossae. There's a problem that comes into the church, some kind of doctrinal confusion, some kind of heresy, some kind of problem. And so what happens is Epaphras contacts Paul and he says, Paul, uh, there's, there's this going on in our church. There's a struggle. There's this problem. There's this heresy. How should we deal with it? And so the, the book of Colossians is Paul responding to that struggle that was going on in Colossae. But there's a problem for us. Is that we don't know exactly what the problem is. We don't know exactly what Paul is addressing. So when we come to a new book and, okay, Paul's addressing a problem. What is that problem? We don't necessarily know. Paul doesn't really clue us in as to what exactly the problem is in Colossae. There's a few hints, but he never out and out mentions what the problem is like he does in other places, like with Galatians and with the Corinthians. That said, many scholars believe that what Paul is confronting is one of a couple possible issues, one of which is called Gnosticism. And hang with me for a minute on this. Gnosticism. It it was basically something that people believed back then, and it was for the intelligent people. It, It was for the elite People. The word Gnosticism actually can mean those who are in the know. So these were the people. They considered themselves as those who had arrived. They had reached a certain level or certain pinnacle of understanding. And so Paul is going to address these people. What these Gnostics believed was that material things like the, the pulpit, like our chairs and like our flesh, created things. They believed all material things were sinful in and of themselves. So again, the world and the flesh and things that are material were considered sinful, but spiritual things, whether it be angels or whether it be um, the Spirit of God or so forth, those are good. And of course, they are good, but to separate those things is very difficult. When you think about it, this would present the Colossians with a bunch of issues. This would mean that the, the world, right, created by God, would be considered sinful to these Gnostics, right? Or this would mean that even the flesh that Jesus took on when he was incarnated of the Virgin Mary, this would mean that his very flesh would be considered sinful. As one author said to the Gnostics, Christ was not creator, the incarnation was not real, and Christ was not enough. And so I think this is probably a lot of what Paul is addressing in his letter to the Colossians. And when you think about what the Gnostics believed in light of what Paul describes here, he totally demolishes what they believe. He addresses these things head on, which we're going to be seeing in a couple weeks. But that's at least an introduction of sorts for you as to what's kind of going on or what could be going on that Paul is addressing them. But before he gets to addressing the problems, before he jumps into these things, he greets these Colossians and he gives thanks for them. Look with me again at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So first, Paul, he greets the Colossians. This is really the classic way that Paul begins his letters. And it's a weird way, isn't it? When we consider the way we write letters. When you write a letter to somebody, or when I write a letter to somebody, is the first word you put, Brandon. But look at the first word in, in the text. What's the first word? Paul. Right? So it's kind of an interesting way to write it. So he is introducing himself first, but when we write somebody a letter, we address that person. But what he wants to do is to let them know who he is from the very first word. Paul. Who is this Paul? Remember that Paul was gloriously saved in Acts chapter 9. 
He's on the road to Damascus and he's going to go and he's going to persecute Christians that had fled to Damascus for safety. And he's going to go there and take a bunch of them back in order to have them thrown into jail and whatnot. The first glimpse that we even have of Paul is in Acts chapter 7. You remember that they, there was a deacon named um, Stephen. I almost fudged his name. A deacon named Stephen who uh, gave this great sermon. He gave it to all these religious leaders who were there. And, and at the end of the sermon, the Jews got so mad. These religious leaders got so mad with Stephen that they took him out and they stoned him. And that's the first glimpse we get of this guy named Paul, who his Hebrew name is Saul. And so Saul is standing there and they lay their cloaks at his feet and they go and throw rocks and stones at this man named Stephen and they kill him. And Saul, Paul, is standing there in approval of what they are doing. So Paul was a great persecutor of the church, quite literally approving of the death of many people or of people. But this was also a man of great pedigree. You might remember in Philippians where he says that he was circumcised of the eighth day, which was of huge importance for a Jewish person. He was of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he was blameless. This was his pedigree. This was his background. These are the things that he could say, oh, you think you're better than me? Let, let me show you how much better I am than you in regard to my pedigree. He was also trained, we know from the Bible, at the feet of Gamaliel. And this was a guy who was a famous rabbi. So not only did he have a great upbringing, not only did he have a great pedigree, but he had great training. Some people, modern people, say that he had the equivalent of three PhDs. This guy was absolutely brilliant. Paul was amazing. He also had Roman citizenship. And he was born into this Roman citizenship. So it carried a special weight for him as he was able to, to move about the Roman Empire at this time. He was able to move about without any kind of glitch or problem. The second thing we see is that Paul, about this Paul, is that he is an apostle. The word apostle means sent one. So he was a sent one by Christ Jesus by the will of God. This is the responsibility he has been given to do. This was his calling. This was his charge. But also note that there is an immense weight to his being an apostle. As an apostle, he has the authority from Christ under the will of God to give this church instruction. So as an apostle, he can write these Colossians a letter and say, do this, do this, do this, and they must do it. So if we're the church at Windsor, and it's 2,000 years ago, if the Apostle Paul walked into our church, or he wrote us a letter, although our church has its own leaders, we would need to submit to whatever Paul had to say. The Apostle could come in and say, you need to change this, you need to move this, you need to change uh, this idea or this program, or you need to do this better, and we would have to obey. He had this apostolic authority, even now do we not adhere to what Paul says within his letters. And I should note too, that the office of, of an Apostle has ceased There are no more modern apostles. So nobody can come in and say, I'm an apostle. Let me tell you how to function as a church. All of that has ceased. We are led by pastors and we submit to Christ by submitting to his word. But in these days, while the apostles were alive, the churches were to submit to their apostolic authority. And you notice that he says how this came about. By the will of God. It's God's will. So it was not Paul's choice. To be an apostle. Paul's choice was to persecute 
the Christians. It wasn't his choice to be an apostle. It was truly the choice and will of God. He next mentions that Timothy is with him. Timothy was one of Paul's young protégés. We know Paul wrote Timothy at least two letters, which are contained even within our own Bibles. But then he goes into who the letter is to. He says, To the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. You notice the language of family there? The the words that he's using is the language of family. Again, to our knowledge, Paul has never met these Colossians, yet he calls them brothers. The word can be certainly stretched out to mean brothers or sisters, brothers and sisters. These Colossians weren't his brothers and sisters relationally. They aren't his brothers ethnically. Instead, they are his brothers and sisters of the most important kind, his brothers and sisters in Christ. Beyond that, he extends grace and peace from God, our Father. So again, more familial language. All you guys are my brothers, you're my sisters, and we all have the same Father. We all have the same God. We are the family of God. But then he gives the location of the church he's writing to, Colossae. I've told you this before, but I had the opportunity to travel to Turkey back in 2009. And for the first four weeks, we, we spent... Uh, doing, we, we were doing various things with meeting Turks. We were trying to uh, you know, give the gospel when we had the opportunity and, and just get a, really a chance to, to interact with the Turkish people. But in the fifth week, we took a tour of the seven churches of Revelation. So if you look in the first few chapters um, in the book of Revelation, you see the church at Laodicea and Smyrna and, 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 and so on, Ephesus and whatnot. But one of the biblical places that's right close by, uh, again, 100 miles away from Ephesus, is uh, the city of Colossae, where Paul is writing this letter to. And so we stopped at Colossae. And so this was about eight years ago, so I don't remember everything perfectly, but I do remember several things about Colossae, and honestly, nothing too significant. From standing at the bottom and looking up, it basically just looks like a mound. That's about all that I could see where I was standing. You look up, and it's just a big Mound. It was nothing in comparison to what Ephesus is. You go to Ephesus and you can see so much. They have unearthed so many things. The second thing I remember seeing was a beautiful snow-capped mountain in the distance. So again, nothing really all that significant. The third thing I remember, which was significant to me anyway, was there was a really nice mulberry tree at the base of Colossae where a Turkish bus driver and me, we stood there eating mulberries. So... That's as much as I remember about Colossae. Nothing that can really help us understand Colossians. But it was a really cool place to go. It's cool to go and to just be where Paul was, or to, who, where Paul wrote the letter to, to see that this was the first place where this letter would have been read. It's neat to be there. But notice the common expression that Paul uses as he begins his letters in verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Just grace to you. Peace to you. So these are gifts of God to the Colossians. These are gifts of God for all who are saints. So we have been extended the wonderful gift of God's grace, which has resulted in our peace. Specifically, we have been extended grace in God's gift of salvation for us, right? For by grace are you saved through faith. So the work of salvation that God has done in our lives is done through His grace. This is something that He gives to us that we do not deserve. We do not deserve His grace. Yet He has, he has, given, to, he has given it so lovingly to us. And the result of this gift of His grace is peace. So we have been given grace from God and in return we have peace with God. Grace from God, peace with 
God. You see that relationship. Paul says elsewhere, since we have been justified or made righteous, made right by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so many people today simply do not have peace with God. They have not received His grace in salvation and therefore they do not have peace with God. He has caused us to have peace if you are a Christian by His grace, calming those storms within our souls by giving grace, giving us peace. In the same chapter, in verse 20, it says that He made peace by the blood of His cross. Friends, do you have peace with God? It genuinely have peace with God. You think about your relationship with Him. Have you received His grace in the gospel and been saved? And as a result, do you have peace in that relationship? Those who have experienced God's grace from God experience peace with God. So this is the greeting from Paul to these Colossians. But notice next that Paul gives thanks for the Colossians in verses 3 to 8. He says in verse 3, We always thank God when we pray for you. I love that. So basically the way he begins this letter is, Hey, I'm Paul. You're my brothers and sisters. And I thank God for you. Isn't that good? You're my brothers and sisters, and I thank God for you. And on the two sides of that, let me ask you two questions. First, do you thank God for people? It's it's so simple, but do you thank God for other Christians? Paul is specifically thankful for what he has heard is going on in the church of Colossae. Verse 4, he's thankful for their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for the saints. So he's not even generically thankful for them. It's not even like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm thankful for you as a church in Colossae. No, he's thankful to God for their faith and for their love for each other. Do you thank God for the gifts of grace that you see in the lives of your fellow Christians? When you see that somebody is growing in their faith, that they're loving the saints, that they're raising their children in the Lord, that they're providing for their families, whatever it is that is godly, do you take the time to thank God for what is going on in that person's life? I think you could probably agree with me because it's true of me that I am so self-focused in my own prayers, right? I love to pray for myself. I love to pray for things for me. We all have a category for what we want God to do in our lives. But do we have a category for what we are thankful God is doing in other people's lives? Church family, let me publicly thank God for what I see Him doing in your lives. Those of you who over the last few years who have been saved, It's not you, it's not me, it's not anyone else that has done the work, but that it is God. And I thank God for that. I thank Him for the faith that He has given you. Those of you who have been baptized or married or having kids and reading the Word and growing and being hospitable, loving the saints, I thank God that He is doing these things within you. I thank God for how much He has changed all of us over the last few years. What a blessing it is to be changed by Him. And I thank God for how He is working. The second question, though, in regard to this, and this is definitely harder, but not only do you thank God for what you see going on in the lives of other people, but do you tell them that you're thanking God for what is going on? So certainly, we want to be thankful to God for what He's doing, but do you tell others that you are thanking God for what you see? How encouraging would it be to develop a culture within our church where we're not only praying and thanking God for what we see in each other, but we're telling each other that we're thanking God. Brother, I'm thankful for how you're providing and leading and and growing your family. 
Sister, I'm thankful for how you're loving your kids and raising them in the Lord, right? I'm thankful uh, for your service in music or kids' ministry. Sometimes ministry can really feel kind of thankless. But if we had a ministry culture that was filled with gratitude for the works of God that he's doing through us, how wonderful would that be? There are so many things that God is doing in everybody's life here. Are you taking the time to notice? Are you taking the time to thank God for those things and to tell them like Paul tells the Colossians here? These two items that Paul is thanking God for in the Colossian church are important things. He's hearing about their faith and he's hearing about their love. And I want you to notice that those two things always go together. Faith in Christ and love for the saints. Those two things go together. How many times have you heard somebody say, I have faith in Jesus, I believe, but I don't really like other Christians. I don't want to be part of the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, that should never be. We certainly take into account those who have been burned by churches. Churches and pastors and leadership often hurt people, unfortunately. And there are seasons where Christians are disenfranchised with the church body. But after a time of healing and restoration, the individual should grow again in their love for what Christ loves. Generally speaking, though, those people who are saying, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, those aren't those people. If you have a genuine faith in Christ... You will love what Jesus loves. And Jesus has an undying and an unfading love for his church. How do we know this? Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her. So how can we ever say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church. If you really do love Jesus, then you will love what Jesus loves. And he loves his church. Faith in Christ and love for the saints are inseparable. I love that this is what the reputation of this church is in Colossae. They have their share of problems, but they have a genuine faith in Christ. They have a genuine love for one another. Brothers and sisters, your love for God is so very clearly and obviously seen in your love for the saints. Loving God and loving your neighbor. And I wonder if we could say this about Windsor Christian Fellowship. Is Windsor Christian Fellowship known as a church that has a faith in Christ, that he is the object of our faith, and we wonder and delight in him, but we also have a great love for the saints. If Paul were to write us a letter, would he thank God for the faith and the love that he sees? Let me direct your attention to verse 8 for a second. He says, Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. This love is is a gift from God to these saints. It's from the Spirit of God. So this is a supernatural kind of love. This is not a love that is fueled by attraction or natural relationship or anything but what the Spirit of God produces. That's incredible. And may God, by His Spirit, help us to love one another with the kind of love that the Spirit supernaturally gives to us. All of this is born out of a great hope that he mentions in verse 5, which again, God is the provider for In verse 5, a hope that is laid up for us in heaven. How long could we sit on words like that? A hope that is laid up in a place where nothing ever corrodes and nothing ever goes bad. A, A hope that is as sure as the one who dwells in that holy place. A hope that is as sure as the place that is God's throne. If your hope is laid up for you in heaven then it is more secure than if all the safes of the world were keeping it. 
Faith in Christ and love for the saints is born from a hope secured for us in heaven. Faith, hope, and love are all used together like in many other places in the New Testament. But these three always go together. Faith, hope, love. And these three are all born from the gospel that is found in verse 5. If you do not have the gospel, if you have not believed this message of Christ, then you will not have the faith, hope, and love that he is speaking of here. The gospel message is from where this faith, hope, and love spring from. And Paul says that this gospel is bearing fruit and that it's increasing in their lives and it's increasing across their country. Look at verse 5 again with me. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you. As indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. Paul reminds these Colossians of the gospel that they had heard beforehand from Epaphras. Remember, this man named Epaphras heard the gospel preached by Paul, goes back home to Colossae, and he preaches the gospel there. People come to Christ, they start a church, and this is what Paul is referring to, the gospel that they had previously heard. They had heard the unadulterated gospel message from Epaphras, that Jesus had come into the world. He had lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for sinners. He rose again, and he has now ascended at the right hand of the Father. They had believed this message. They clung to it with all that they had. But the false teachers had come in, and they had begun to distort the simplicity of the gospel message. And before you know it, some of the Colossians were being swept away by this false teaching that had filtered into the church and they were beginning to lose their grasp on the simple message of the gospel they had heard from Epaphras. And as I thought about this, it dawned on me again that this is the gospel. This is the good news that needs to be spread to all people. It doesn't matter the culture or the country. The gospel marches on and it's been marching on for thousands of years. You think about that. The same gospel that was saving people in modern day Turkey back in Colossae 2,000 years ago is the same gospel that is saving people in Windsor, Maine today. The gospel transcends culture. It transcends country. It transcends status. It transcends your ethnicity. And whether male or female or any other category, it transcends all of those things. And I ask you, have you genuinely received this message of the gospel. It is not a matter of stringing together 25 words when you're a child. And now I'm good. I did that many times. Prayed a prayer over and over and over and was never genuinely converted, or at least not that I know. It's not a matter of doing that. It's a matter of genuine faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Friend, you cannot work your way to heaven. There is nothing you can do to impress God. All of your righteousness is as filthy rags. And so when we stand before God someday, what are you going to present to Him? When you stand before God, are you going to say, I was a really good person. I was a really good person. I did what my parents wanted me to do. I did what I thought was right. I worked really hard. I provided for my family. I went to church every Sunday. None of those things are going to work. None of those things are the key to that door of heaven. But what it's going to be is standing before God and saying, it is nothing I've done. It's nothing I've done. It's no works. It's nothing. 
I was not a good person. The only good about me was what Jesus ever did through me and gave to me. So when you stand before God, it better not be, well, I had the scale and the good outweighed the bad because that's not going to fly. What will fly and the only thing that will fly is I trust in Jesus. That Jesus is the only one to get me through that door. Believing that He died my death on the cross for a death that I deserved to die. I genuinely deserved to be the one hanging on that cross. But He hung there for me. I genuinely deserved it. And I deserved hell. I deserved that as my punishment. But He did it all on our behalf. Friends, do you, like the Colossians, do you have a faith in Christ? Do you have a hope laid up for you in heaven? This is the beautiful passage of Scripture that lays out so many truths for those who do believe in the Gospel, who do trust in what Christ has done. That we're saints. That we're brothers and sisters. That we've been given God's grace. That we actually can have peace with God. That God is our Father. That we were gifted faith in Christ. That we can have love for all of the saints. That we have a hope laid up in heaven. And we have the gospel. Contained in just these eight verses. We have everything that we need. We don't need any earthly trinkets. We have no no need for Jesus plus another belief system. Just a simple faith and trust. For what Christ has done for us. All that we need is what God has provided for us in the gospel. The title of the sermon this morning is Faith, Hope, and Love in the Gospel. And the Colossians, although they had some error within their church, they had these things. They they had faith in Christ. They had love for one another. They had a hope laid up for them in heaven. And they had all of these things because they had the gospel. But the question I'm left with at the end of this sermon is where did this gospel even come from? And the answer is that the gospel came from God. Do you notice how God is referenced even in these verses? Verse 3, God the Father. Verse 4, Christ Jesus, God the Son. Verse 8, the Spirit, God the Spirit. So the foundation for all of these truths in our text today is found in God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. From God comes this beautiful gospel message that bears the fruit of faith, hope, and love. May God add these truths to our lives. Lord, we're thankful for your word and for those who have received the gospel. I'm thankful to know that we all have this hope laid up for us in heaven. even be able to have faith and have you as the object of our faith and to love each other all because we've been given the most beautiful message the greatest good news the gospel of Jesus Christ Lord I pray for those who are here who do not know you Lord I pray that you will enable them by your spirit to see the truths of the gospel and what they need help them to believe Help them to trust in you alone. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.